Hello and welcome to the Strange Tales podcast presented by me your host Winston R. Douglas. This week we take a look at music and one of the most successful rock bands that is Pink Floyd. They were distinguished for their extended compositions, sonic experimentation, philosophical lyrics and elaborate live shows, and became a leading band of the progressive rock genre, cited by some as the greatest progressive rock band of all time. Pink Floyd were founded by Sid Barrett, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and Richard Wright. Under Barrett's leadership, they released two charting singles and the successful debut album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn in 1967. Guitarist and vocalist David Gilmour joined in December 1967. Barrett left in April 1968 due to deteriorating mental health. Waters became the primary lyricist and thematic leader, devising the concepts behind the band's peak of critical and commercial success with the albums The Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and The Wall. Okay let's get into today's strange tale. Released in January 1977, Animals peaked on the UK chart at number 2, and the US chart at number 3. Enemy described the album as one of the most extreme, relentless, harrowing and downright iconoclastic hunks of music, and melody makers Carl Dallas called it, an, uncomfortable taste of reality in a medium that has become in recent years, increasingly soporific. Pink Floyd performed much of Animals during their In the Flesh tour. It was their first experience playing large stadiums, whose size caused unease in the band. Waters began arriving at each venue alone, departing immediately after the performance. On one occasion, Wright flew back to England, threatening to quit. At the Montreal Olympic Stadium, a group of noisy and enthusiastic fans in the front row of the audience irritated Waters so much that he spat at one of them. The end of the tour marked a low point for Gilmore, who felt that the band achieved the success they had sought, with nothing left for them to accomplish. Author Patrick Croscary described Animals as a unique blend of the powerful sounds and suggestive themes of Dark Side with the Wall's portrayal of artistic alienation. He drew a parallel between the album's political themes and that of Orwell's Animal Farm. Animals begins with a thought experiment, which asks, if you didn't care what happened to me, and I didn't care for you, then develops a beast fable based on anthropomorphized characters using music to reflect the individual states of mind of each. The lyrics ultimately paint a picture of dystopia, the inevitable result of a world devoid of empathy and compassion, answering the question posed in the opening lines. The album's characters include the dogs, representing fervent capitalists, the pigs, symbolizing political corruption, and the sheep, who represent the exploited. Croscary described the sheep as being in a state of delusion created by a misleading cultural identity, a false consciousness. The dog, in his tireless pursuit of self-interest and success, ends up depressed and alone with no one to trust, utterly lacking emotional satisfaction after a life of exploitation. Waters used Mary Whitehouse as an example of a pig, being someone who in his estimation, used the power of the government to impose her values on society. 
At the album's conclusion, Waters returns to empathy with the lyrical statement, You know that I care what happens to you. And I know that you care for me too. However, he also acknowledges that the pigs are a continuing threat and reveals that he is a dog who requires shelter, suggesting the need for a balance between state, commerce and community, versus an ongoing battle between them. In July 1978, amid a financial crisis caused by negligent investments, Waters presented two ideas for Pink Floyd's next album. The first was a 90-minute demo with the working title Bricks in the Wall, the other later became Waters' first solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Although both Mason and Gilmore were initially cautious, they chose the former. Bob Ezrin co-produced and wrote a 40-page script for the new album. Ezrin based the story on the central figure of Pink, a gestalt character inspired by Waters' childhood experiences, the most notable of which was the death of his father in World War II. This first metaphorical brick led to more problems, Pink would become drug-addled, and depressed by the music industry, eventually transforming into a megalomaniac, a development inspired partly by the decline of Sid Barrett. At the end of the album, the increasingly fascist audience would watch as Pink tore down the wall, once again becoming a regular and caring person. During the recording of The Wall, the band became dissatisfied with Wright's lack of contribution and fired him. Gilmore said that Wright was dismissed as he hadn't contributed anything of any value whatsoever to the album, he did very, very little. According to Mason, Wright would sit in on the sessions without doing anything, just being a producer. Waters said the band agreed that Wright would either have to have a long battle or agree to leave quietly after the album was finished, Wright accepted the ultimatum and left. The Wall was supported by Pink Floyd's first single since Money, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, which topped the charts in the US and the UK. The Wall was released on 30 November 1979 and, and topped the Billboard chart in the US for 15 weeks reaching number three in the UK. It is tied for sixth most certified album by RIA, with 23 million certified units sold in the US. The cover, with a stark brick wall and band name, was the first Pink Floyd album cover since The Piper at the Gates of Dawn not designed by Hypnosis. Gerald Scarf produced a series of animations for the Wall Tour. He also commissioned the construction of large inflatable puppets representing characters from the storyline, including the mother, the ex-wife and the schoolmaster. Pink Floyd used the puppets during their performances. Relationships within the band reached an all-time low. Their four Winnebagos parked in a circle, the doors facing away from the center. Waters used his own vehicle to arrive at the venue and stayed in different hotels from the rest of the band. Wright returned as a paid musician, making him the only band member to profit from the tour, which lost about $600,000. The Wall was adapted into a film, Pink Floyd, The Wall. The film was conceived as a combination of live concert footage and animated scenes. However, the concert footage proved impractical to film. 
Alan Parker agreed to direct and took a different approach. The animated sequences remained, but scenes were acted by actors with no dialogue. Waters was screen-tested, but quickly discarded and they asked Bob Geldof to accept the role of Pink. Geldof was initially dismissive, condemning the Wall's storyline as bollocks. Eventually won over by the prospect of participation in a significant film and receiving a large payment for his work, Geldof agreed. Screened at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1982, Pink Floyd, The Wall premiered in the UK in July 1982. Waters' lyrics to Wish You Were Here's Have a Cigar deal with a perceived lack of sincerity on the part of music industry representatives. The song illustrates a dysfunctional dynamic between the band and a record label executive who congratulates the group on their current sales success, implying that they are on the same team while revealing that he erroneously believes Pink is the name of one of the band members. According to author David Detmer, the album's lyrics deal with the dehumanizing aspects of the world of commerce, a situation the artist must endure to reach their audience. Absence as a lyrical theme is common in the music of Pink Floyd. Examples include the absence of Barrett after 1968, and that of Waters' father, who died during the Second World War. Waters' lyrics also explored unrealized political goals and unsuccessful endeavors. Their film score, obscured by clouds, dealt with the loss of youthful exuberance that sometimes comes with aging. Longtime Pink Floyd album cover designer, Storm Thorgerson, described the lyrics of Wish You Were Here. The idea of presence withheld, of the ways that people pretend to be present while their minds are really elsewhere, and the devices and motivations employed psychologically by people to suppress the full force of their presence, eventually boiled down to a single theme, absence. The absence of a person, the absence of a feeling. Waters commented, it's about none of us really being there, it, should have been called Wish We Were Here. O'Neill Serber explored the lyrics of Pink Floyd and declared the issue of non-being a common theme in their music. Waters invoked non-being or non-existence in the wall, with the lyrics to comfortably numb, I caught a fleeting glimpse, out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look, but it was gone. I cannot put my finger on it now, the child is grown, the dream is gone. Barrett referred to non-being in his final contribution to the band's catalogue, Jug Band Blues, I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. When I say, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon, what I mean, is, if you feel that you're the only one, that you seem crazy, because, you think everything is crazy. You're not alone. O'Neill Serber compared the lyrics of Dark Side of the Moon's brain damage with Karl Marx's theory of self-alienation. There's someone in my head, but it's not me. The lyrics to Wish You Were Here's Welcome to the Machine suggest what Marx called the alienation of the thing, the song's protagonist preoccupied with material possessions to the point that he becomes estranged from himself and others. Allusions to the alienation of man's species being can be found in animals, the dog reduced to living instinctively as a non-human. The dogs become alienated from themselves to the extent that they justify their lack of integrity as a necessary and defensible position in a cutthroat world with no room for empathy or moral principle wrote Detmer. 
Alienation from others is a consistent theme in the lyrics of Pink Floyd, and it is a core element of the wall. as the most severe consequence of the manifestation of alienation from others, is also a core element of the wall, and a recurring theme in the band's music. Waters' father died in combat during the Second World War, and his lyrics often alluded to the cost of war, including those from Corporal Plague 1968, Free Fall 1972, Us and Them 1973, When the Tigers Broke Free, and the Fletcher Memorial Home from the Final Cut 1983, an album dedicated to his late father and subtitled A Requiem for the Postwar Dream. The themes and composition of the wall express Waters' upbringing in an English society depleted of men after the Second World War, a condition that negatively affected his personal relationships with women. In 1982, Waters suggested a project with the working title Spare Bricks, originally conceived as the soundtrack album for Pink Floyd The Wall. With the onset of the Falklands War, he changed direction, and began writing new material. He saw Margaret Thatcher's response to the invasion of the Falklands as jingoistic and unnecessary, and dedicated the album to his late father. Immediately arguments arose between Waters and Gilmore, who felt that the album should include all new material, rather than recycle songs passed over for the wall. Waters felt that Gilmore had contributed little to the band's lyrical repertoire. Michael Carman, a contributor to the orchestral arrangements of The Wall, mediated between the two, also performing the role traditionally occupied by the then-absent Wright. Tension within the band grew. Waters and Gilmore worked independently, however, Gilmore began to feel the strain, sometimes barely maintaining his composure. After a final confrontation, Gilmore's name disappeared from the credit list, reflecting what Waters felt was his lack of songwriting contributions. Though Mason's musical contributions were minimal, he stayed busy recording sound effects for an experimental holophonic system to be used on the album. With marital problems of his own, he remained a distant figure. Pink Floyd did not use Thorgerson for the cover design, Waters choosing to design the cover himself. Released in March 1983, the final cut went straight to number one in the UK and number six in the US. Waters wrote all the lyrics and music on the album. Gilmore did not have any material ready for the album and asked Waters to delay the recording until he could write some songs, but Waters refused. Gilmore later commented, I'm certainly guilty at times of being lazy, but he wasn't right about wanting to put some duff tracks on the final cut. Rolling Stone magazine gave the album five stars, with Kurt Loder calling it a superlative achievement, art rock's crowning masterpiece. Loder viewed the final cut as essentially a Roger Waters solo album. Gilmore recorded his second solo album, about Face, in 1984, and used it to express his feelings about a variety of topics, from the murder of John Lennon to his relationship with Waters. He later stated that he used the album to distance himself from Pink Floyd. Soon afterwards, Waters began touring his first solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Wright formed Z with Dave Harris and recorded Identity, which went almost unnoticed upon its release. 
Mason released his second solo album, Profiles, in August 1985. Gilmore, Mason, Waters and O'Rourke met for dinner in 1984 to discuss their future. According to Mason, he and Gilmore left the restaurant thinking that life could continue after Waters had finished the pros and cons of hitchhiking, noting that Pink Floyd had had several hiatuses before. However, Waters left under the misapprehension that Mason and Gilmore had accepted that Pink Floyd were finished. Mason said that Waters later saw the meeting as duplicity rather than diplomacy, and wrote in his memoir, Clearly, our communication skills were still troublingly non-existent. We left the restaurant with diametrically opposed views of what had been decided. Following the release of the pros and cons of hitchhiking, Waters publicly insisted that Pink Floyd would not reunite. He contacted O'Rourke, to discuss settling future royalty payments. O'Rourke felt obliged to inform Mason and Gilmore, which angered Waters, who wanted to dismiss him as the band's manager. He terminated his management contract with O'Rourke and employed Peter Rudge to manage his affairs. Waters wrote to Emmy and Columbia announcing he had left the band, and asked them to release him from his contractual obligations. Gilmore believed that Waters left to hasten the demise of Pink Floyd. Waters later stated that, by not making new albums, Pink Floyd would be in breach of contract which would suggest that royalty payments would be suspended, and that the other band members had forced him from the group by threatening to sue him. He went to the High Court in an effort to dissolve the band and prevent the use of the Pink Floyd name, declaring Pink Floyd a spent force creatively. When Waters lawyers discovered that the partnership had never been formally confirmed. Waters returned to the High Court in an attempt to obtain a veto over further use of the band's name. Gilmore responded with a press release affirming that Pink Floyd would continue to exist. The sides reached an out-of-court agreement, finalized on Gilmore's houseboat the Astoria on Christmas Eve 1987. In 2013, Waters said he regretted the lawsuit, and had failed to appreciate that the Pink Floyd name had commercial value independent of the band members. Rolling Stone critic Alan DePerna praised Gilmore's guitar work as integral to Pink Floyd's sound, and described him as the most important guitarist of the 1970s, the missing link between Hendrix and Van Halen. Rolling Stone named him the 14th greatest guitarist of all time. In 2006, Gilmore said of his technique, fingers make a distinctive sound, they, aren't very fast, but I think I am instantly recognizable, the way I play melodies is connected to things like Hank Marvin and the shadows. Gilmore's ability to use fewer notes than most to express himself without sacrificing strength or beauty drew a favorable comparison to jazz trumpeter Miles Davis. In 2006, Guitar World writer Jimmy Brown described Gilmore's guitar style as characterized by simple, huge-sounding riffs, gutsy, well-paced solos, and rich, ambient chordal textures. According to Brown, Gilmore's solos on money, time and comfortably numb cut through the mix like a laser beam through fog. 
Brown described the time solo as a masterpiece of phrasing and motivic development, Gilmore paces himself throughout and builds upon his initial idea by leaping into the upper register with gut-wrenching one and one-half step over bends, soulful triplet arpeggios and a typically impeccable bar vibrato. Brown described Gilmore's phrasing as intuitive and perhaps his best asset, as a lead guitarist. Gilmore explained how he achieved his signature tone, I usually use a fuzz box, a delay and a bright EQ setting, to get, singing sustain, you need to play loud, at or near the feedback threshold. It's just so much more fun to play, when bent notes slice right through you like a razor blade. In 1986, Gilmore began recruiting musicians for what would become Pink Floyd's first album Without Waters. A momentary lapse of reason. There were legal obstacles to Wright's readmittance to the band, but after a meeting in Hampstead, Pink Floyd invited Wright to participate in the coming sessions. Gilmore later stated that Wright's presence would make us stronger legally and musically, and Pink Floyd employed him as a musician with weekly earnings of $11,000. Recording sessions began on Gilmore's houseboat, the Astoria, moored along the River Thames. The group found it difficult to work without Waters' creative direction, to write lyrics, Gilmore worked with several songwriters, including Eric Stewart and Roger McGough, eventually choosing Anthony Moore. Wright and Mason were out of practice. Gilmore said they had been destroyed by Roger, and their contributions were minimal. Pink Floyd in 1989 on the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. A Momentary Lapse of Reason was released in September 1987. Storm Thorgerson, whose creative input was absent from the wall and the final cut, designed the album cover. To drive home that Waters had left the band, they included a group photograph on the inside cover, the first since medal. The album went straight to number three in the UK and the US. Waters commented. I think it's facile, but a quite clever forgery, the songs are poor in general, and, Gilmore's lyrics are third-rate. Although Gilmore initially viewed the album as a return to the band's top form, Wright disagreed, stating, Rogers' criticisms are fair. It's not a band album at all. Q Magazine described the album as essentially a Gilmore solo album. Waters attempted to subvert the momentary lapse of Reason Tour by contacting promoters in the US and threatening to sue them if they used the Pink Floyd name. Gilmore and Mason funded the startup costs with Mason using his Ferrari 250 GTO as collateral. Early rehearsals for the upcoming tour were chaotic, with Mason and Wright entirely out of practice. Realizing he had taken on too much work, Gilmore asked Ezrin to assist them. As Pink Floyd toured North America, Waters Radio KOS tour was on occasion, close by, though in much smaller venues than those hosting his former band's performances. Waters issued a writ for copyright fees for the band's use of the Flying Pig. Pink Floyd responded by attaching a large set of male genitalia to its underside to distinguish it from Waters' design. The parties reached a legal agreement on 23 December, Mason and Gilmore retained the right to use the Pink Floyd name in perpetuity and Waters received exclusive rights too among other things, the wall.
For several years Pink Floyd had busied themselves with personal pursuits, such as filming and competing in the La Carrera Panamericana, and recording a soundtrack for a film based on the event. In January 1993, they began working on a new album, The Division Bell, returning to Britannia Row Studios, where for several days, Gilmore, Mason and Wright worked collaboratively, improvising material. After about two weeks, the band had enough ideas to begin creating songs. Ezrin returned to co-produce the album and production moved to the Astoria, where from February to May 1993, they worked on about 25 ideas. Contractually, Wright was not a member of the band, and said, it came close to a point where I wasn't going to do the album. However, he earned five co-writing credits, his first on a Pink Floyd album since 1975's Wish You Were Here. Another songwriter credited on the album was Gilmore's future wife, Polly Sampson. She helped him write several tracks, including High Hopes, a collaborative arrangement which, though initially tense, pulled the whole album together, according to Ezran. They hired Michael Carmen to arrange the album's orchestral parts, Dick Parry and Chris Thomas also returned. Writer Douglas Adams provided the album title and Thorgus in the cover artwork. Ferguson drew inspiration for the album cover from the Moai monoliths of Easter Island, two opposing faces forming an implied third face about which he commented, the absent face, the ghost of Pink Floyd's past, Sid and Roger. Eager to avoid competing against other album releases, as had happened with a momentary lapse, Pink Floyd set a deadline of April 1994, at which point they would resume touring. The Division Bell reached number one in the UK and the US, and spent 51 weeks on the UK chart. Pink Floyd spent more than two weeks rehearsing in a hangar at Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino, California, before opening on 29 March 1994, in Miami, with an almost identical road crew to that used for their momentary lapse of reason tour. They played a variety of Pink Floyd favorites, and later changed their setlist to include the dark side of the moon in its entirety. The tour, Pink Floyd's last, ended on the 29th of October 1994. Mason published a memoir, Inside Out, A Personal History of Pink Floyd, in 2004. On the 2nd of July 2005, Waters, Gilmore, Mason and Wright performed together as Pink Floyd for the first time in more than 24 years, at the Live 8 concert in Hyde Park, London. The reunion was arranged by Live 8 organizer Bob Geldof, after Gilmore declined the offer, Geldof asked Mason, who contacted Waters. About two weeks later, Waters called Gilmore, their first conversation in two years, and the next day Gilmore agreed. In a statement to the press, the band stressed the unimportance of their problems in the context of the Live 8 event. They planned their setlist at the Connaught Hotel in London, followed by three days of rehearsals at Black Island Studios. The sessions were problematic, with disagreements over the style and pace of the songs they were practicing, the running order was decided on the eve of the event. At the beginning of their performance of Wish You Were Here, Waters told the audience, it is, quite emotional, standing up here with these three guys after all these years, standing to be counted with the rest of you, we're doing this for everyone who's not here, and particularly of course for Sid. 
At the end, Gilmore thanked the audience and started to walk off the stage. Waters called him back, and the band shared a group hug. Images of the hug were a favorite among Sunday newspapers after Live 8. Waters said of their almost 20 years of animosity, I don't think any of us came out of the years from 1985 with any credit, it was a bad, negative time, and I regret my part in that negativity. Though Pink Floyd turned down a contract worth £136 million for a final tour, Waters did not rule out more performances, suggesting it ought to be for a charity event only. However, Gilmore told the Associated Press that a reunion would not happen. The, Live 8, rehearsals convinced me, that, it wasn't something I wanted to be doing a lot of. There have been all sorts of farewell moments in people's lives and careers which they have then rescinded, but I think I can fairly categorically say that there won't be a tour or an album again that I take part in. It isn't to do with animosity or anything like that. It's just, I've been there, I've done it. In February 2006, Gilmore was interviewed for the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, which declared, Patience for fans in mourning. The news is official. Pink Floyd the brand is dissolved, finished, definitely deceased. Asked about the future of Pink Floyd, Gilmore responded, It's over, I've had enough. I'm 60 years old, it is much more comfortable to work on my own. Gilmore and Waters repeatedly said that they had no plans to reunite. Barrett died on 7 July 2006, at his home in Cambridge, aged 60. His funeral was held at Cambridge Crematorium on 18 July 2006, no Pink Floyd members attended. Wright said. The band are very naturally upset and sad to hear of Sid Barrett's death. Sid was the guiding light of the early band lineup and leaves a legacy which continues to inspire. Although Barrett had faded into obscurity over the decades, the national press praised him for his contributions to music. On 10 May 2007, Waters, Gilmore, Wright and Mason performed at the Barrett Tribute Concert Madcap's Last Laugh at the Barbican Centre in London. Gilmore, Wright and Mason performed the Barrett compositions Bike and Arnold Lane, and Waters performed a solo version of his song Flickering Flame. Wright died of an undisclosed form of cancer on 15 September 2008, aged 65. His former bandmates paid tributes to his life and work, Gilmore said, in the welter of arguments about who or what was Pink Floyd, Rick's enormous input was frequently forgotten. He was gentle, unassuming and private but his soulful voice and playing were vital, magical components of our most recognized Pink Floyd sound. A week after Wright's death, Gilmore performed Remember a Day from a Saucerful of Secrets, written and originally sung by Wright, in tribute to him on BBC Two's Later. With Jules Holland. Keyboardist Keith Emerson released a statement praising Wright as the backbone of Pink Floyd. On 10 July 2010, Waters and Gilmore performed together at a charity event for the Hoping Foundation. The event, 
which raised money for Palestinian children, took place at Kiddington Hall in Oxfordshire, England, with an audience of approximately 200. In return for Waters' appearance at the event, Gilmore performed comfortably numbered Waters' performance of The Wall at the London O2 Arena on 12 May 2011, singing the choruses and playing the two guitar solos. Mason also joined, playing tambourine for Outside the Wall with Gilmore on mandolin. On 26 September 2011, Pink Floyd and Emmy launched an exhaustive re-release campaign under the title Why Pink Floyd? Reissuing the back catalogue in newly remastered versions, including Experience and Immersion multi-disc multi-format editions. The albums were remastered by James Guthrie, co-producer of The Wall. In November 2015, Pink Floyd released a limited edition EP, 1965. Their first recordings, comprising six songs recorded prior to The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. In 2012, Gilmore and Mason revisited recordings made with Wright during the Division Bell sessions to create a new Pink Floyd album. They recruited session musicians to help record new parts and generally harness studio technology. Waters was not involved. Mason described the album as a tribute to Wright. I think this record is a good way of recognizing a lot of what he does and how his playing was at the heart of the Pink Floyd sound. Listening back to the sessions, it really brought home to me what a special player he was. The Endless River was released on the 7th of November 2014, the second Pink Floyd album distributed by Parlophone following the release of the 20th anniversary editions of The Division Bell earlier in 2014. Though it received mixed reviews, it became the most pre-ordered album of all time on Amazon UK and debuted at number one in several countries. The vinyl edition was the fastest-selling UK vinyl release of 2014 and the fastest-selling since 1997. Gilmore said The Endless River would be Pink Floyd's last album, saying, I think we have successfully commandeered the best of what there is. It's a shame, but this is the end. There was no supporting tour, as Gilmore felt it was impossible without Wright. In 2015, Gilmore reiterated that Pink Floyd were done and that to reunite without Wright would be wrong. Mason said in 2018 that, while he remained close to both, Gilmore and Waters remained at loggerheads. In November 2016, Pink Floyd released a box set, the early years 1965 to 1972, comprising outtakes, live recordings, remixes and films from their early career. It was followed in December 2019 by the later years, compiling Pink Floyd's work after Waters' departure. The set includes a remixed version of A Momentary Lapse of Reason with more contributions by Wright and Mason, and an expanded reissue of the live album Delicate Sound of Thunder. In November 2020, the reissue of Delicate Sound of Thunder was given a standalone release on multiple formats. In March 2021, Pink Floyd announced that their Live at Nebworth 1990 performance, previously released as part of the later year's box set, would be released on CD and vinyl on 30 April. In 2018, Mason formed a new band, 
Nick Mason's saucer full of secrets, to perform Pink Floyd's early material. The band includes Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet, and longtime Pink Floyd collaborator Guy Pratt. They toured Europe in September 2018 and North America in 2019. Waters joined the band at the New York Beacon Theatre to perform vocals for Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Regarded as pioneers of live music performance and renowned for their lavish stage shows, Pink Floyd also set high standards in sound quality, making use of innovative sound effects and quadraphonic speaker systems. From their earliest days, they employed visual effects to accompany their psychedelic music while performing at venues such as the UFO Club in London. Their slide and light show was one of the first in British rock, and it helped them become popular among London's underground. To celebrate the launch of the London Free Schools magazine International Times in 1966, they performed in front of 2,000 people at the opening of the Roundhouse, attended by celebrities including Paul McCartney and Marianne Faithful. In mid-1966, road manager Peter Wynne Wilson joined their road crew and updated the band's lighting rig with some innovative ideas including the use of polarizers, mirrors and stretched condoms. After their record deal with Emmy, Pink Floyd purchased a Ford Transit van, then considered extravagant band transportation. On the 29th of April 1967, they headlined an all-night event called the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alexandra Palace, London. Pink Floyd arrived at the festival at around 3 o'clock in the morning after a long journey by van and ferry from the Netherlands, taking the stage just as the sun was beginning to rise. In July 1969, precipitated by their space-related music and lyrics, they took part in the live BBC television coverage of the Apollo 11 moon landing, performing an instrumental piece which they called Moonhead. In November 1974, they employed for the first time the large circular screen that would become a staple of their live shows. In 1977, they employed the use of a large inflatable floating pig named Algae. Filled with helium and propane, Algae, while floating above the audience, would explode with a loud noise during the In the Flesh tour. The behavior of the audience during the tour, as well as the large size of the venues, proved a strong influence on their concept album The Wall. The subsequent The Wall tour featured a 40 feet or 12 m high wall, built from cardboard bricks, constructed between the band and the audience. They projected animations onto the wall, while gaps allowed the audience to view various scenes from the story. They commissioned the creation of several giant inflatables to represent characters from the story. One striking feature of the tour was the performance of Comfortably Numb. While Waters sang his opening verse, in darkness, Gilmore waited for his cue on top of the wall. When it came, bright blue and white lights would suddenly reveal him. Gilmore stood on a flight case on casters, an insecure setup supported from behind by a technician. A large hydraulic platform supported both Gilmore and the tech. During the Division Bell tour, an unknown person using the name Publius posted a message on an internet newsgroup inviting fans to solve a riddle supposedly concealed in the new album. White lights in front of the stage at the Pink Floyd concert in East Rutherford spelled out the words Enigma Publius. 
During a televised concert at Earl's Court on 20 October 1994, someone projected the word Enigma in large letters onto the backdrop of the stage. Mason later acknowledged that their record company had instigated the Publius Enigma mystery, rather than the band. Pink Floyd are one of the most commercially successful and influential rock bands of all time. They have sold more than 250 million records worldwide, including 75 million certified units in the United States, and 37.9 million albums sold in the US since 1993. The Sunday Times Rich List, Music Millionaires 2013, UK, ranked Waters at number 12 with an estimated fortune of £150 million, Gilmore at number 27 with £85 million and Mason at number 37 with £50 million. In 2004, MSNBC ranked Pink Floyd number 8 on their list of the 10 best rock bands ever. In the same year, Q named Pink Floyd as the biggest band of all time according to a points system that measured sales of their biggest album, the scale of their biggest headlining show and the total number of weeks spent on the UK album chart. Rolling Stone ranked them number 51 on their list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. VH1 ranked them number 18 in the list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Colin Larkin ranked Pink Floyd number 3 in his list of the top 50 artists of all time, a ranking based on the cumulative votes for each artist's albums included in his all-time top 1000 albums. In 2008, the head rock and pop critic of The Guardian, Alexis Petridis, wrote that the band occupy a unique place in progressive rock, stating, 30 years on, progressive rock is still persona non grata only Pink Floyd, never really a progressive rock band, their penchant for long songs and concepts notwithstanding, are permitted into the 100 best album lists. The writer Eric Olson has called Pink Floyd the most eccentric and experimental multi-platinum band of the album rock era. Pink Floyd have won several awards. In 1981 audio engineer James Guthrie won the Grammy Award for Best Engineered Non-Classical Album for The Wall, and Roger Waters won the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award for Best Original Song Written for a Film in 1983 for Another Brick in the Wall from The Wall Film. In 1995, Pink Floyd won the Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental Performance for Marooned. In 2008, King Carl XVI Gustav of Sweden presented Pink Floyd with the Polar Music Prize for their contribution to modern music. Waters and Mason attended the ceremony, and accepted the award. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, the UK Music Hall of Fame in 2005, and the Hit Parade Hall of Fame in 2010. Pink Floyd have influenced numerous artists. David Bowie called Barrett a significant inspiration, and The Edge of U2 bought his first delay pedal after hearing the opening guitar chords to Dogs from Animals. Other bands and artists who cite them as an influence include Queen, Radiohead, Stephen Wilson, Marillion, Queensryche, Nine Inch Nails, The Orb and The Smashing Pumpkins. 
Pink Floyd were an influence on the neo-progressive rock subgenre which emerged in the 1980s. The English rock band mostly autumn fused the music of Genesis and Pink Floyd in their sound. Pink Floyd were admirers of the Monty Python comedy group, and helped finance their 1975 film Monty Python, and the Holy Grail. In 2016, Pink Floyd became the second band, after the Beatles, to feature on a series of UK postage stamps issued by the Royal Mail. In May 2017, to mark the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's first single, an audiovisual exhibition, Their Mortal Remains, opened at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The exhibition featured analysis of cover art, conceptual props from the stage, shows, and photographs from Mason's personal archive. It was extended for two weeks beyond its planned closing date of the 1st of October. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed today's strange tale. If you did please smash that gorgeous like button, and subscribe so that you will be notified to future shows. Also if you could write a 5 star review that would really help us get the word out, so other people can enjoy the podcast as well. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Strange Tales Pod. Or you can message me at strangetalespod at gmail.com, with feedback or ideas on future shows. If you would like to support the podcast you can do so through Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash strangetalespod. Where we have plans from as little as 3 US dollars a month and you can opt out any time. Any help is much appreciated. This is me your host Winston R. Douglas signing out for now. Thanks again hope to see you again soon.